Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The following program contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go die and go to hell. I think I'm not wrong. Time for 911. Where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. I'm pretty one look. Talk to the road. Send the police. Send the police. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started, eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, I wear a male car with his hands to a coffee table and just pull it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a one-way bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would, who would, who would, whose life would be... I'd harm someone each time I... Kill someone to be an enormous amount, of, uh, especially at first, uh, enormous amount of, of, of horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. Alphonse, the Black Prince of Ligon Street, Gagitano, has been described as a loving husband and father and as a vile gangster and murderer. From the 1970s right through to the late 90s, the Black Prince ruled over Carlton, brutalising its residents with extortion, drug dealing and murder. Seemingly unstoppable, the Prince went too far and couldn't predict his best friend would turn on him. In October 2012, a woman called the Nottinghamshire Police in England to report that Bill and Pat Witcherly had been killed 14 years earlier and she knew where their bodies were buried. If she was telling the truth, why had nobody reported the couple missing? And what did Gary Cooper and Gerard Depardieu have to do with it? Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. Now, being a comedy true crime podcast means that we use dark humour as a means to tell horrendous stories. Though they're never at the expense of the victims or their families, we do make jokes. If you do not like the genre of comedy true crime and you don't think humour has any business being associated with tragedy, then bloody murder is definitely not for you. There are a lot of great, serious true crime podcasts out there and your time may be better spent listening to them instead. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. We have some new ones this week, so thank you to the lovely Dean Batchelor and Catherine Knox. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. 
As a patron, you will have access to dozens of other episodes, including our florid and nautical early stuff. (laughs) As well as exclusive uncensored patron-only monthly episodes where we really let fly. And levels above $5 receive free stickers and handmade Barney badges. And of course, you're automatically entered into our monthly giveaways. Mmm, you certainly are. All right, Tara, I believe it's time for you to get murdery. In October 2012, Elizabeth Edwards called the police to report that her stepson Christopher had told her he and his wife Susan buried her parents in the garden of their home in Nottinghamshire, England, 14 years earlier. Christopher explained he and Susan were on the lamb in France and asked her to send him money so the couple could stay out of prison. Being an upstanding citizen, Elizabeth immediately contacted the police. Detective Chief Inspector Griffin wasn't sure what to make of the phone call. Was Elizabeth telling the truth or was the octanagerian confused or possibly senile? Or was this all some sort of elaborate piss take? DCI Griffin knew he couldn't just barge onto the property in Blenheim Close, which was now occupied by a woman and her teenage daughter, and just start digging up their garden. So instead, he put on his deerstalker hat and started sleuthing. Ah, like Robert Palmer, looking for clues. Yeah, just like Robert Palmer. Oh, whoa, whoa, looking for clues. And his five daughters. DCI Griffin found out that the solicitors and estate agents involved in the sale of the Witchley's house in 2005 had never even seen Bill or Pat in person. They forged some documents, obviously. Mm. And the elderly couple hadn't attended any medical appointments since 1998. Oh, healthy fuckers. Well, I mean, there might be other reasons, Barney. Murderous reasons. Oh, yeah, 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 I get it. With his spidey senses tingling, DCI Griffin started to believe Elizabeth might be telling the truth. A huge team was assembled to excavate the garden at 2 Blenheim Close. They used ground-penetrating radar, cadaver dogs, and an archaeologist to find where the bodies were buried. Indiana Jones? Oh, he was definitely there. After a careful excavation process, the remains of Bill and Pat Witcherly were found wrapped in bedding, folded into the fetal position, and buried one on top of the other in a narrow, metre-deep, makeshift grave. Ah, oh, that's cold, isn't it? Just fold them up and chuck them in. Yeah, yeah, indeed. A forensic radiographer, pathologist, and a ballistics expert were called in to determine the time of the murders and the cause of death which turned out to be bullet wounds from a Second World War service revolver. Ooh. If the Witcherleys had indeed been dead for 14 years, why had nobody noticed and reported them missing? Maybe they were replaced by clones. No, they weren't, but it is a valid question. It happens all the time. Clones, does, they're yeah. everywhere. I know, they really are. William and Patricia Witcherly were married in 1958 when he was 46 and she was 23 and pregnant with Susan, who would be their only child. Bill was a son of a Mansfield coal miner and served in the Merchant Navy. He and Pat were reclusive hermits who were more camera shy than Bigfoot. The police were only able to find two photos of Bill and they never found any photos of Pat. And it's not like they didn't try asking their friends or relatives. Well, they didn't actually have any friends, so that was a pretty quick process. The police were only able to find family members on Bill's side. So from a personal point of view, it's as though Pat had never existed or come from anywhere. The police got in touch with some of Bill's nieces who told them that they hardly knew their uncle and had never met their aunt. 
Bill and Pat's neighbours had seen them around 14 years earlier, but they never said more than hello, despite some of their neighbours' attempts to get to know them better. One of their neighbours, John, told the media that they weren't rude or anything, they were just happy being on their own. They always seemed to be in or around the house. They didn't seem to go anywhere. Another neighbour, Leslie, said of Pat, she was very old-fashioned, she always had this dark green raincoat on. He was very straight and upright. They never walked together. She was always 10 yards behind him. Apparently their place looked like a dark, smoky house from the outside. Staying inside, smoking a lot, avoiding people. I think we would have got along just fine with the Witcherleys, don't you reckon, Barney? I think so. Bill and Pat's only child, Susan Edwards, and her husband, Christopher, were also not huge fans of the general public. Susan and Christopher had met each other through a dating agency. Ooh, I wonder if it was a niche dating agency for people who don't like people. Looking for love but can't stand people? Come to Fuck Off Dating Agency. We'll find you a relationship without all that icky talking to people bullshit. Kind of defeats the purpose, but yeah, I, I dig it. Well, you know, you're the person that shits me the least. Some of our friends got married with that as their... um. <laughs> <laughs> That was their big motto for their wedding. Yeah, well. We shit each other the least. Mm. So maybe it's one of those situations. Susan and Christopher had no children or friends and preferred to just hang out with each other. Christopher worked as a credit control officer for Hallmark Cards, but he didn't socialise with his co-workers because Susan didn't like him to. I think the people at Hallmark missed a big opportunity by not getting Christopher to write their cards for them. Roses are red, violets are purple. I'd rather cut off my balls than hang out with people. Uh, that's some pretty clumsy rhyming there, Tara, but I, I, I dig it. Well, I never said he was going to be good at it, did I? Well, obviously. While Christopher was at work, Susan stayed at home inside their small rented council flat in Dagenham. They were so reclusive that their neighbours wouldn't have been able to pick him out of a lineup. Susan had worked as a librarian in her early 20s, but gave work up after marriage to focus on her true passion. Second World War leaders, particularly Charles de Gaulle, a French army officer and statesman who led the French resistance against Nazi Germany in World War II. I mean, come on, everyone's into him. Oh, absolutely. I've got a poster yeah, of him yeah, on my bedroom wall. Yeah, indeed. Christopher was also passionate about military history. In the late 90s, the couple started buying books on war, stamps and autographs from famous people such as high noon film star Gary Cooper and getting themselves in some heavy debt collecting Hollywood memorabilia. I feel for them. I mean, nobody truly understands me except for signed pictures of Gary Cooper. Oh, yeah. Coop feels your pain. You can tell those signed pictures anything and they'll empathise. Damn straight. A neighbour who lived opposite the Edwardses said, I know they used to collect things because they had parcels delivered. If the postman came, she would never open the door. One of my old neighbours used to get quite worried about the lady because we never used to see her much and we knew she was in there. And if they did walk down the street, they wouldn't be walking along together. She'd be behind him. Just like her mum and dad, huh? Yeah, that's the way you should walk with me, Tara. Oh, I'm not going to walk behind you, like downwind from you. Yeah. I'm just not ever going to do that for obvious reasons. Oh, crop dust you. Susan's parents were the only people they ever saw socially. And even then, they didn't see them often. And their relationship was pretty strained. 
Susan said that her father had never approved of Christopher and he was incredibly jealous of their relationship, even trying to stop them get married in 1983. Jealous of their relationship. I'm sure there's more to that. Oh, there is. Despite her father's reservations, uh, Susan and Christopher did get married in 1993. Fun fact, the only guests were autographed photos and books on World War II. Oh, they must have saved a fortune on catering. Oh, and on the bar tab. Mm. But there were issues between Susan and her parents before that. When Susan was 21, she was left £10,000 by the second wife of her maternal grandfather. Half of it was spent taking her mum on a holiday to Graceland in Memphis, Tennessee. Oh, they could see the toilet that Elvis died on. Yeah, it was breathtaking. They could sit on it. In 1983, the other half of the money was used to buy her parents' house in Edgware. Susan's name was initially on the deed, but she said her parents emotionally blackmailed her into signing over her shares in the house to them because it had been her grandfather's wish that her mother, Pat, should inherit the house. I don't understand why. It all just sounds like bullshit to me. But hey, this is what I found out. Susan's parents sold that house at a profit and they bought a cheaper place in Mansfield, but they kept all of the money for themselves instead of paying Sarah back and she had resented this ever since. That could have bought Susan a lot of signed pictures of Ernest Borgnine. Yeah, nah. They weren't big Borgie fans. I have them all. They were people of taste, unlike yourself, Barney. <laughs> what? This financial issue pales in comparison to Susan's other cause for resenting her parents. Susan claimed her father had sexually assaulted her from when she was a small child until she was 11 years old. She said her mother knew and did nothing about it. Sexual abuse, getting ripped off and being raised to walk 10 feet behind your husband. These are all solid inspirations for a flaming hatred to bubble inside Susan for many years. In 1998, this dormant volcano erupted. After Christopher's stepmother called the police, they tried to get in touch with Christopher, leaving him phone messages and sending him emails. Two weeks after the bodies of Susan's parents were discovered, Christopher sent an email to DCI Griffin, and the subject of it was surrender. Griffin told The Guardian it was an extremely polite email, essentially saying, I'd like to come back to England and hand myself in for a double murder. I'd like to come back to England and sign myself in for a double murder. And they did. When they were arrested at the St Pancras Eurostar Terminal, they had with them only one pound, a change of clothes and a suitcase full of memorabilia. I travel light, but all my pictures, they come with me. After their arrest, the couple confessed to manslaughter but not murder. Susan claimed she'd been visiting her parents alone during the bank holiday in May 1998 when her mother, 63-year-old Patricia, had killed her 85-year-old father Bill during a fight. Susan said that Pat then started taunting her, claiming that she was sleeping with Christopher and pointing the gun in her face. I'm banging your husband. Susan said she wrestled the gun out of her mother's hand and shot her dead. A likely story. That's an incredible story. Very Uh, implausible. Yeah, quite. Susan claimed she only told Christopher about it a week after the shootings when they returned to Mansfield from their home in Dagenham. Apparently, after her confession, they ate fish and chips and watched the Eurovision Song Contest. Oh, by the way, husband, I killed my parents. I forgot to tell you, so I slipped my mind. (laughs) It was a week later. Yeah. Well, you know, she's like, oh, I forgot. 
Christopher echoed Susan's version of events, adding that they'd uh, got up at 2am to bury the decomposing bodies in the garden. Hmm. They had 15 years to come up with a story. Hmm. You think they could have come up with something better? Yeah. Yeah. You would imagine. And then the flying monkeys came and they laser-eyed my mom. Yeah, that's that's it. Sounds a bit more that's plausible, right. Maybe put it? a car chase in there, a few explosions. Just Michael Bay it up a bit. Michael Bay. Oh, okay. My oh. mum was outside washing the car seductively. View <laughs> in her little tiny shorty jorts. Oh, I love those. I, I'm wearing them now. <laughs> I wish you were wearing them now. Those arseless chaps leave nothing to the imagination. Yeah, well. Neighbours had indeed seen Christopher up to his waist digging in the garden that weekend. He later said in court that he'd been digging a grave, but he hit a cable while he was digging the first hole, so he had to move further down the garden to dig, dig a second hole, and it, so he couldn't actually dig it as long as he wanted to. So he was a bit you know, annoyed about that, had to fold the bodies up and shit. Yeah, it's funny, you know, you'd think that it'd happen a lot when you're digging a grave. You'd I'm hit sure a cable or a tree root or, or hit rock or something and yeah. you, have to, you have to move the grave somewhere else. Oh. But they never have that in movies, do they? They should. Be more realistic. I'm surprised they haven't had it in Mr. In-Between yet. Yeah. <laughs> that may be season three. After the bodies were buried, they planted shrubs on top of the grave. Forensic analysis was able to put the Edwards' account of how the murders had occurred into some serious doubt. The Witcherleys had both been shot twice in the chest, and the idea of Susan and Pat, neither of whom had any experience with guns, accomplishing this was quite laughable, especially when Christopher mentioned in his police interviews that he used to be a member of a gun club and he was quite handy with a pistol. Mm, damning. Very damning. Hmm. Now, as soon as the banks opened, on the Tuesday after the bank holiday, Susan went to her parents' building society. She opened a new account in the joint names of herself and her dead mum and closed two accounts held by her parents in their joint names. So she cleared out around £40,000 from their accounts. Yeah, and this is the day after the murder. Yes. Well, and it was a bank holiday on the Monday, so on the Tuesday, oh, she yeah. did this. Yeah, right. And then a few days later... She told her husband. Yeah, oh. when they were eating fish and chips. She was like, oh, oh that reminds me. Oh. Shot my mum. I forgot. Well, this is really nice haddock, this. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I shot my parents. Susan and Christopher went to great lengths for well over a decade, weaving a tangled web of lies to ensure that their crime went undiscovered. Diabolical. Very. They told their neighbours that Pat and Bill had gone on a holiday. Forever. Oh, they've gone on a holiday in the ground. Yeah, it's just in having a little, little rest yeah, under having, the di- a dirt nap. They're having a bit of a lie down in the backyard. They're a bit dead. Susan replied to any mail her parents received, sometimes pretending to be her father and sometimes saying that she was writing on his behalf as his mind had gotten weak due to his advanced age. Her mum didn't receive mail because she pretty much didn't exist. Yeah, right. I'm not sure she ever existed. They cancelled any doctor's appointments or other meetings that her parents had and wrote letters to the doctors when reminders came for vaccinations, refusing them on grounds that were found to be believable. They can't come. They're fucking dead. Susan sent Christmas cards to relatives to fortify the lie that her parents were happily travelling around Ireland, where the air was good. I mean, that's a bit ironic, isn't it? They're underground, but they're yeah. somewhere where the air is good. In a 2011 Christmas card she sent to one of her cousins, Susan wrote of her dead father, 
Oh, it's like he's having his second youth now, because when he does speak now, he speaks of travel and travelling. I cannot really keep up with where he is planning to settle. It is good to see them with such zest. Ah, splendid. Oh, Susan, you are full of it. Their relatives were completely taken in by their lies and none of them asked any questions. Susan and Christopher went to her parents' property every other weekend to collect their mail, work on their garden and maintain upkeep on the house. For 14 years, they kept their murderous secret and spent over $175,000, which was payable to Pat and Bill in pensions, industrial injuries benefits and winter fuel payments. But it wasn't enough to keep up with their obsession with World War II and celebrity memorabilia. They were uh, like completely addicted to it. They spent tens of thousands of pounds on celebrity photographs and letters and the couple got more in debt despite taking Susan's folks for all they were worth. They bought signed photos of film star Gary Cooper along with a bank form that Cooper used to authorise his stockbroker to sell some shares in a Mexican steel company. Oh, I remember that. I was thinking, don't sell, but he did. Yeah, I know. He was like, you uh, know what? I'm really, I like this Mexican steel. And then he was like, oh, I don't know. I've gone cold on it. I just yeah, well, I'm not feeling it for Mexican steel anymore. There's a lot of money in Mexican steel. Well, there used to be. They also bought a blue and cream table card from a 1940s dance with Frank Sinatra's autograph on it. Right. So yeah. don't put your coffee cup on that table. No, Get no. Up, don't put that there. That's our special Frankie autograph. Unable to keep up with their own spending habits, they obtained loans and credit cards in Pat's name, but their ridiculous spending continued. They were paying their creditors $700 a month at the same time as spending more than seven grand on a single shipment of signed Gary Cooper memorabilia. Oh, that Gary Cooper memorabilia. That, you know, that, if you pull that thread, that's a deep dive. Oh, yeah. You'll never come out again. Yeah, you would, you, people will never see you again. Oh, and all your tw- money goes. Yeah. Oh, the socks he was wearing in High Noon. <laughs> take take 100000 yeah, yeah. for those. The books the couple bought were big, expensive, glossy, illustrated hardback books on war, historic military costumes, and also like box sets of Charles de Gaulle's memoirs. Low on cash but unable to live with knowing there were more Gary Cooper signatures out there that they just had to have, Susan and Christopher forged the necessary documents to sell the Witcherley's property in 2005 and kept the £67,000 from the sale. Christopher was against the house being sold at first because it would mean losing control of the Witcherley's burial site. But hey, priorities... In 2012, the Department for Work and Pensions sent William Witcherly a letter congratulating him on his forthcoming 100th birthday um, and asking for him to come in for an interview to assess his benefits and arrange a telegram from the Queen. Oh, fancy. This weirded the Edwardses out something fierce. Yeah, it's a bit hard to weekend at Bernie's then. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a bit late to be starting that now. Yeah, no, they're no, skeletal by now. No, I mean, that's, mm. that's just sort of gross really it's mm, yeah. ridiculous um also michael bay if you're listening i mean you could do yeah. something with that explode it susan and christopher sensed the jig would soon be up so christopher stole ten thousand dollars from uh hallmark his employer and the couple ran away to lille in france which happened to be the birthplace of charles de gaulle um, but they couldn't actually access the witcherly's accounts from overseas um christopher couldn't find a job and their money ran out but instead of selling off the memorabilia they'd bought with them, uh, Christopher called his stepmother, Elizabeth Edwards, and asked for money and told her about the bodies. 
Mm. And then she called the cops. So this is how this is how the, the circle completes itself. Uh, yeah, that would have been an interesting conversation. And also, I love how they just double down. I'm just going to steal 10 grand off my employer. and well, uh, you may as well by that go to France. Point. Why the hell not? Yeah. At the time of their arrest, the Edwardses owed £166,000 despite looting £286,000 from Susan's dead parents. During the Edwards's murder trial, something very interesting was uncovered. Ooh. It turned out that Susan had catfished her husband, Christopher, by faking a 14-year correspondence with French actor Gerard Depardieu. Yep, that big, blonde, wise, guzzling, cliched French bastard. She'd told Christopher that she and Gerard were pen pals when she'd actually been writing the letters to herself. She went to great lengths to keep up this Gerard facade, even using a special stamp to make it look as if the envelopes had a French postmark. So, yeah, that started in 1983. That's when she started doing the Gerard Depardieu catfish. Um, so the couple must have been big fans of French cinema, as Gerard didn't get his breakthrough English-speaking role in Green Card until 1990. Gerard Depardieu, huh? That's an interesting choice. Well, I, Gerard Depard, don't. Yeah, well, Robert De Niro did describe him as being like a rogue truck in a demolition derby. So this was before he uh, urinated in public on a flight to Dublin? Yep, and before he was accused of punching a motorist in the face during a road rage incident in Paris. Was it before he was arrested for driving while drunk after he fell off his scooter and was found to have a blood alcohol level of 1.8? It was indeed, and it was before he claimed that he drank 10 to 14 bottles of wine every day. Well then, it was definitely before he attended dictator Kim Jong-un's party to celebrate 70 years of statehood in North Korea. That, yep. that was a bit weird. <laughs> Everything else was quite normal. I mean, if you're going to catfish yourself and your husband, Gerard is a pretty good choice. I would have went with Ernest Borgnine. But, I know, uh, but like, was he alive? Sure. You don't even know. No, he only died a few years ago. No, it wasn't soon enough for me. At sentencing, Mrs Justice Catherine Thurwell said that she was hesitant to believe Susan's claim of sexual abuse at the hands of her father. But she said, however, there is evidence wholly independent of the two of you that when you are married, William Witcherly was irrationally jealous. On reflection and balance, therefore, I accept that your father had sexually assaulted you when you were young. The abuse stopped when you were 11. You left home in your early 20s. That background may well explain why you hated him, which you did, and why you have no remorse about killing him. Judges are so judgy. Given that you left home in the early 1980s, some 15 years before the murders, I cannot accept that his conduct, wholly wrong as it was, explains your decision to kill him in 1998. Judges are a bit judgy, oh, aren't they? They're so judgy. I guess that's their purpose, though. Well, yeah, it's, it's sort of in the job title, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but just you don't have, they don't have to enjoy it so much. <laughs> Justice Thurwell considered the true motive for the murders was so that uh, greedy Susan and Christopher could get their hands on her parents' money. Um, she also believed that the murders were premeditated. And if that is true about her dad molesting her, I mean, yeah, that's incredibly vile and low. And, um, yeah, not into it. Mitigating circumstances, maybe, but uh, still murder. Yeah. No reason for it. Well, and the fact that all the stealing on top of it and the running and everything, it just didn't look good. No. 
Susan and Christopher Edwards were sentenced to 29 years each for the murders of Pat and Bill Witcherly, as well as obstructing the coroner and theft. Now that sentence is particularly harsh for them, as they only like being around each other. DCI Griffin said it was clear that the couple were very much in love. Now, I'm guessing Susan probably does everything she can think of to get thrown in solitary confinement. Yeah. She certainly doesn't want to hang out with people all day. No. She has no experience with it either. No. According to The Guardian, only 14 people went to the Witcherly's funeral. Only three of them had ever met Pat. Among the mourners were Bill's nieces, Sue Bramley, and her daughter, who lived at Two Blenheim Close. Um, It was a humanist service followed by a cremation and then a wreath of white lilies was laid on the spot where Bill and Pat used to be buried. And Gerard Depardieu was standing in the shrubbery with an umbrella as it's raining away from the crowd. It's interesting that you should bring that up. He wasn't. Um, But I actually have an alternative theory on this. Okay, so what if Susan's friendship with Gerard Depardieu was real? He killed her parents, drank all their wine and fucked off back to France, leaving her and Christopher behind to clean up his mess. Then when they fled England, they went to France, which they did, to stay with Gerard Depardieu. Hmm. To stay with Gerard Depardieu. But after a year with Gerard Depardieu, they decided they'd rather go to prison. Well, Tara... How's that for an alternative theory? Are you a detective? Because your theory is quite plausible. It is. I mean, there's absolutely no facts to back it up, but Hmm. I can't help but wonder. Hmm, solid, solid. What a crazy story. I wonder what happened to all those pictures of Gary Cooper. Yeah, well, the thing is that when they were arrested, they only had about, you know, under 20 grand worth of memorabilia with them. Like, did they bury it somewhere in the hope they could find it later? Oh, yeah, treasure. Did they just, like overpay massively for what and they got. you're going to tell me that you actually have a map. Oh, wow. Uh-huh, that's where it's buried. But the thing is that we have to go to Gerard Depardieu's house. Oh, no. Is yeah. it in his basement? Yeah. yeah. I bet he wheezes in his basement quite openly as well. Well, we'll just take, to take a couple of bottles of wine. I'm sure I could we talk could my dis- way in there. distract him with yeah, plenty yeah. of wine, mm. um, you know. Maybe encourage him to go for a scooter ride. I'm not sure. We could work something out. <laughs> By the way, Gerard Depardieu, you know, he's uh, he's a French folk hero, really. It's, uh, he's, he's quite well he's an loved icon. by lots of people, including French people. Not the woman who accused him of rape last year. But, well, um, he, hmm. well, he was cleared on that charge. Um, I'm, not, I'm not trying to stick up yeah. for him. I see. Yeah. It's a cracking tale, though. Thank you. Ah, oh, it was just the most one of the most bizarre things I've ever heard, actually. So, um, well, obviously it's Tara bait, isn't it? Especially once we get to the Gerard Depardieu catfishing. I mean, like I'm going to go past that. So, what time is it, Barney? It's true crime nerd time. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, graphic novel, song, piece of burnt toast that looks like... Chopper Reed. Or anything that has scratched your true crime itch. I scratch my itches with toast that looks like famous murderers. I thought I was just having a stroke. Nah. 
You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it, and we'll read it out. And we have one here from Tracy Stewart, and uh, she comes from Wallingford in CT, Connecticut. Hey, Tracy. Connecticut or cunt? A cunt's not a state, is no, it? No. Well, I mean, if it was going to be a state, it would be in Australia, really. Well, no. well, we'll see you in the CT. Yeah. <laughs> hey, if you can find it first. And she writes, Dear Barney, I've got a true crime nerd time for you. A three-part Scottish TV series called In Plain Sight. This is not a documentary, but is based on a true story and features a right bastard, Peter Manuel. Oh, I covered that right bastard in one of our chunky yet funky early episodes. Um, I would believe it was number 20. That's right, known as the uh, Beast of Birkenshaw. It starts with Detective William Muncie, played by the lovely and talented Douglas Henshell, getting an anonymous creepy note hand-delivered to his home, and he knows that Manuel wrote it. Muncie's the one that put Manuel away a few years ago, and now his sentence is up. Manuel wants to make him pay for it. <laughs> Considering Muncie has a wife and young daughters, he's a bit concerned. Yeah, you would be because he was like really like violent and rapey and just all the bad things. When crimes start occurring, Muncie can't manage to convince anyone he's not just obsessing over Manuel. Oh, that old chestnut. Until a young woman comes in to report an incident that I don't want to say anything about because you have to experience the mind fuckery for yourself. Oh, yeah. I don't want secondhand mind fuckery. I, I, want, I want, like, first person. Oh, yeah. Just lay it on the... Have at it. Give <laughs> me the mind fuckery. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing it now. Woo! Woo! What? Oh, what the... Oh, no. The trial. Holy crap, the trial. And it just gets worse <laughs> from there. Culminating in one of the most senseless and horrific and heartbreaking murders I have ever heard of, even after listening to hundreds of episodes of Bloody Murder. It's intense, horrifying, and really, really good. Well, I mean, that's pretty enticing. That's a pretty good recommendation right there. Wow, Tracy. Yeah, you're speaking our language. That was awesome. If you want to submit a True Crime Nerd Time, visit our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for instructions on how to do that. So that's pretty easy. You just make it about 250 words. Yeah. Yeah, and, and make it good like that yeah, one. Yeah, Woo. and, uh, you know, we're running out of these, so, yeah, send them in. Get We'd it, love to get, get your voices in. too. Well, we want we you to contribute. I know. I thought more people would be into that, but um, maybe they, they know they know better <laughs> than we do. They make better life choices. Is that what you're trying to say? Sorry? They make better life choices? Well, quite possibly. They, yeah. yeah I'm just, than us? I mean, well, I mean, they couldn't really make worse ones, could they? <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. All right, Barney, I believe it's time for you to get murdery. Well, this story is entitled The Black Prince of Ligon Street. Oh, it sounds as though you're about to read us the poem. Well, this is another one of those pieces of the puzzle of the Melbourne underworld that falls into place. Yep. Been wanting to do this guy for a while. Oh, sexy. No, not in that way. Uh, well, you'll need a Ouija board, won't you? I will. 
Alphonse Gagetano was born March 24, 1957 at the Queen Victoria Hospital in Melbourne to Mother Maria and Father Dominic Gagetano. This was their first child and Alphonse's travel agent middle-class parents popped a silver spoon in his mouth and spoilt the kid rotten. Later the Gagetanos would have a daughter, but Alphonse was the golden child. Problem was, Alphonse was a bit broken, Tara. Now here's a nature versus nurture argument for you. The Gagetanos had no criminality in their family. In fact, they were considered hard-working and were respected in their community and Alphonse experienced no poverty or abuse in his childhood. But the little black prince was prone to violence from an early age. Do you think that was because his parents coddled him for being magnificent enough to be born with a penis? Yeah, well, that didn't work for me. <laughs> but I'm the last of five boys, so I think they oh, were well, over it by then. There were too many dicks on the dance floor by then, Barney. Oh, yeah. Alphonse's bad attitude was obvious when he started at a Catholic primary school in Melbourne's eastern suburbs. Dominic and Maria were called in numerous times by the school when Alphonse got into strife for, amongst other things, punching on in the playground bullying kids and just not turning up for class. Alphonse was not golden. In fact, he was a bit shit. (laughs) His parents pulled their hair out trying to fix little Alphonse, but Alphonse couldn't be fixed. He was a bad boy who liked to do bad things. Much like yourself, Barney. Oh, yeah, I'm so bad. By the time he reached high school, he was out of control. Alphonse first attended, and I use the word attended very loosely, the posh De La Salle School and then the equally posh Marcellin College. Alphonse didn't have friends at such. He had henchmen and became obsessed with gangster movies, especially Scarface and The Godfather, Snore. I'm Alphonse Gadgetino. You fuck with me, you fucking with the best. Yeah, that's how he talked. (laughs) In fact, he he used to put on a bit of an Italian accent too. Oh, right. Oh, nice. That's the spirit. Pretty much every day at Marcellin College, there would be an announcement over the loudspeaker. Alphonse Gagetano, report to the headmaster's office. Once he drove the car to school and left it parked in one of the teacher's parking spots. Oh, teachers don't get paid enough to put up with this shit. Ah, uh, yeah. That got him suspended, Tara. People who knew him in his high school days said as soon as you met him, you didn't like him. <laughs> wow, okay, well, that's sucks. Definitely goes toward uh, building a picture of him, doesn't it? It does. But you would never tell Alphonse because he would beat the shit out of you. Yeah, that's probably why they didn't like him. Now, Alphonse had no real role model from the criminal world to act as his mentor, so he mimicked what he saw in movies and the rest he just made up. He had all the opportunities in life to become whatever he wanted to be, but in the end he became a gangster thug turd because that's what he wanted to be. When Alphonse was 16 years old, he started hanging out with criminal types, including the notorious Mark Chopper Reed. In fact, it was Uncle Chop Chop who gave him his first gun. Oh, thanks for that, Chopper. Chopper said on the TV show Tough Nuts, He wanted to be a gangster, you know, and I was the first bloke to give him a sawn-off shotgun. When I was 19 and he was 16, it was a beautiful sawn-off shotgun my old man gave to me, and I gave it to Alphonse when I got a handgun. Hand-me-down weaponry. Ah, it's a beautiful story, isn't it? Yeah, but quite hauntingly, poetically told. Armed with his first gun from Chopper, Alphonse Gagetano started shaking down shopkeepers in Carlton and threatening the general public. Anyone who looked at Alphonse the wrong way was in for a pounding. Oh, sexy. 
It was about this time Alphonse developed a pathological hatred for police. According to Mick Gatto in his aptly titled book, I, Mick Gatto, Alphonse's loathing of cops began after he got into a fight at a club in Footscray called Bunnies. According to Gatto, it was a bloodbath. All the bouncers were attacked and someone drove a car through the front door. <laughs> oh, God. I was he has, mate. The police called Alphonse and took him back to the station and punched the living shit out of him. Alphonse told Mick Gatto he was sitting with his hands on a desk when a policeman smashed them with a typewriter. A few days later, Alphonse looked like the elephant man with a swollen head. From that day on, he was determined to get revenge on the coppers that fucked him up. Well, probably not those exact ones, just like any cops. Yeah, any cop, yeah. (laughs) Alphonse liked to cruise Melbourne nightclubs looking for off-duty police officers and indulge in a bit of biffo with them. He soon gained a reputation as a brutal thug and someone not to be trifled with, Tara. Yeah, you don't want to put him in a bowl with jelly and sponge cake and cream and maybe some peaches. Different kind of trifle, I think. Uh, well, I also think this kind you wouldn't want to do we, either. We should talk more about cake-related uh, assaults. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even think of any right now, but that would be a good topic for an episode. At just 22 years of age, Alphonse would commit his first murder. Would you like to hear about it, or do you want to just... No, nah, I think we should just finish up. <laughs> yeah, of course I want to hear about it. God, you murder tease. Mickey's Disco in St Kilda was part owned by hard man Christopher Mr Rentakill Flannery. Remember him? Ah, I do. We've, uh, we've done an episode on him. We've done an episode on almost everyone mentioned in this story. Mickey's Disco was, as they say in Star Wars, a wretched hive of scum and villainy and a hangout for the royalty of the Melbourne underworld. Oh, so it was like that dodgy cantina from Star Wars. Well, it was more like they say it was Melbourne Studio 54. You know, lots of disco dancing and big white suits. I I guess the only difference was it was always a big fight in the car park. Yeah, see, I feel like Studio 54 didn't have a lot of uh, car park violence from, like, local young thugs. No, yeah. It was a bit more highfalutin. Hmm. Yeah, Mickey's Disco was far superior. <laughs> oh, God. So it was here at Mickey's Disco that Alphonse got friendly with Mr. Rentakill. Did they get matching little leather man bags? He did like our little man bags, Flannery, didn't he? Yeah, yeah very much. Mm. At the time, Flannery was in a bit of a pickle. He was staring down a murder charge. Sex worker Deborah Bounty could put him away for the murder of her boyfriend, barrister Roger Wilson. In August 1980, Flannery and two other men were arrested and charged with Wilson's murder. Wilson's body was never found, but the police alleged that the trio had forced him off the road, abducted him and taken him to Pakenham. Oh, God. Well, you wouldn't go there on purpose, would you? Where Flannery led him into the bush to shoot him. Flannery is said to have missed and Wilson, bleeding profusely from a head wound, tried to escape. It was then that Flannery went mad and emptied his gun into Wilson's head and back. Flannery has been described as flamboyant and hot-headed, but he was also cunning and calculated. Although Flannery saw Alphonse as a kid, he also saw an opportunity to solve his problem. Even though Deborah Bounty had refused to implicate Flannery at an inquest, there was still the trial. Deborah remained a loose end and Flannery hated loose ends. On Christmas Day 1980, Deborah had lunch with her parents, reported for bail because she was charged with perjury when she retracted her statement at the Wilson inquest, Uh and then slipped over to a Richmond pub for drinks. 
I believe it was the Royal Oak. Oh. Someone she knew lured her from the Royal Oak Hotel in Richmond and then forced or tricked her into writing a letter to her parents saying she was running away. She wasn't. The word is Alphonse Gadgetano was behind it, charming her with a promise of heroin and then giving her a hot shot. Deborah Boundy was just 19. Oh, wow. Alphonse now had a reputation, not only as a thug and expert street fighter, but as a murderer. Now known as the Black Prince of Ligon Street, Alphonse cemented his place in the criminal fraternity with the establishment of a gang calling themselves the Carlton Crew. This bunch of Italian gangsters, or gangsters with Italian heritage, included Graham the Munster Kinnenberg, Mario Condello, and Dominic Mick Gatto. They were affiliated with the Irish drug lords, the Morans, who included Jason and Mark Moran and their father, Lewis. All but one of these men would die from drug-related gunfire. Yeah, they were really into killing each other back then. They really were. Oh, yeah, loved it. Alphonse got his wish and moved into the big league and the illegal casino trade. Alphonse also recruited dozens of meatheads, mainly of Italian origin, who installed jukeboxes and vending machines in local bars and nightclubs, even if they didn't want them. Oh. Uh, Yeah, like under the threat of violence. Yeah, right, this is going there or you die. Yeah. The Carlton crew then reinvested their profits in drug trafficking. Now, Tara, Chopper Reed had been a friend of Alphonse's, but the two men had a bit of a spat after Chopper had unknowingly punched up a man who was a friend of the Black Prince. Ah, well, you know, you can't always know whose friend you're getting in Biffo with, can you? Yeah, that's right. Especially when you're punching cunts every other day. If you're just going out there punching cunts all the time, I mean, it's it's just sort of figures that you'll accidentally punch the wrong cunt. It's just the law of punching cunts averages. Yeah, yeah, you've got to watch out for it if you're going to be in the biz because you're going to get the biz. Alphonse had a <laughs> reputation to uphold and he had to come back at Chopper hard. Ew. This is how Chopper tells it. Oh, please give me some more Chopper quotes. And this is my favourite bit of the story, by the way, Tara. Ah, excellent. All righty then. I'm at the pub and I've got to go to the dunny. I'm in the shitter and I was having a poo. Oh, and the next thing, the door is smashed open and Alphonse is there with these boys and they're kicking me, just kicking me in the face. And I've got to wipe me bum. <laughs> And I got up and I'm throwing punches with my eyes closed. And when I've opened my eyes, I found I'm punching bouncers. Alphonse had disappeared. He knew that one day that would come back and bite him on the ass. You can't beat someone like me. See, if I want to get revenge on someone, I will watch and I will wait. Revenge is a dish best eaten cold. And I'll eat it freezing cold. <laughs> and eat it freezing cold. He did, Tara. Oh, I don't doubt it. Chopper goes on to say, I got a hold of some gelignite and some handguns and I started shooting up a few places that Alphonse was involved with. I ran around to his club with the gelignite and he pushed his way out of the toilet window and landed on the roof of his Mercedes and hurt his back. Everything comes back to the toilet with these guys. Then he went up to Mick Gatto and says, Chopper Reed's looking for me with his gelignite and wants to blow my head off. I'm not afraid of Chopper Reed, but I'm worried about my family, he told Gatto. You see, by this time, Alphonse was married with two children. His wife, Gina, knew nothing of his criminal activities and Alphonse didn't want her to know. Oh, what did she think that he, like, ran a shoe store in a suburban shopping centre? Oh, you know, they always just say they're a property developer or something. Right, yes, okay. Uh, Just like a lot of these duplicitous bastards, Alphonse led a double life. One of a loving husband and father, the other as a slimy gangster. 
So word gets out that Chopper wanted to gel ignite Alphonse a new asshole. <laughs> it turns out Alphonse wasn't king shit. He was just a wet fart. Oh, God. The imagery is breathtaking. Oh, thanks. The Black Prince shat his pantaloons with fright and with his bluster gone, he packed up his wife and kids and left Australia to get away from Chopper. <laughs> the cafes, restaurants and clubs of Ligon Street Carlton breathed a collective sigh of relief. Alphonse hid in Italy until the news came that Chopper had been jailed in Tasmania for attempted murder. With Chopper safely behind bars, Alphonse returned to Melbourne and his life of thuggery. So this meant the cafes, restaurants and clubs of Ligon Street Carlton once again clenched their collective buttocks. Oh, well, yeah, you'd have to, wouldn't you? You would. The Black Prince of Ligon Street was even more violent and unpredictable than before. Developing a taste for cocaine and gambling, he strutted the streets of Melbourne, taking what he wanted. According to Mick Gatto in his book, One night a gorgeous young blonde girl walked past Alphonse. She was beautiful and he said, Fuck, you're ugly. He was joking. She turned around and said, Have a look in the mirror yourself. Alphonse King hit her and broke her nose. Mick Gatto couldn't believe it. You're kidding, he said. Fuck her, Alphonse replied. Mm. Now, did I mention, Tara, that Alphonse took what he wanted? You did, and I believe you. Well, that included cars. If he saw a car he liked, <laughs> he would walk up to the driver, introduce himself, don't you know who I am, and then demand the keys. No one said no, and no one reported him. Often he would drive around in them for months and then just dump them somewhere. There was one story that he used to carry around a pink slip in his glove box so he could just get them to sign over the car right then and there. Oh, well, you'd only want to drive a crappy car into Carlton then, wouldn't you? Well, yeah. Although it's kind of known for um, people wanting to drive their fancy cars down Ligon Street. Oh, so yeah. that's, a, that's a bit of a conundrum for the fancy car owners. Yeah, turn up that um, techno. Oh, yes, please. <laughs> At the height of Alphonse Gadgetano's criminal career, he was earning an estimated $125,000 to $200,000 a month. Wow. That's almost as much as all podcasters make. Maybe in bollars. Yeah, podcasters do get paid in bollars. <laughs> but enough was never enough for Alphonse. All that preening and red wine and those fancy Italian suits were expensive, Tara. The Black Prince's bottom line was also not helped by his degenerate gambling habit. Alphonse diversified and sunk some money into racehorses. Problem was, Tara, the ones he got were not fast runners. Isn't that the point? Is for well, them to you know, run fast? Yeah, were they yeah. attractive? Were they pretty horses? Maybe it was reverse horse racing. Oh, like the, the slowest one would win? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I don't think that's the thing. He then started a company called Superstar Promotions. <laughs> And signed up as many boxers as he could. What, like the dogs? No. Because I would go to see a show. The punching ones. Oh, right. Including a young lad, a super lightweight by the name of Lester Ellis. Lester Ellis did quite well. That was until Alphonse put all of his money behind an IBF super lightweight title between his champion Ellis and an older boxer, Barry Michael, on July 12, 1985. When I say older... He was 30. Yeah, well, so that's, in boxing years, yeah. it's like dog years. After 15 nail-biting rounds, Alice went down to Michael. Alphonse reportedly lost $2 million. Oh, he's not going to be happy about that. He's going to have a big tanty. He's he going to get all shouty crackers on it. <laughs> Shout, nah. Shouty crackers. 
I stole that from Hugh Grant. That's how, how he described having a... T- oh, he has a tantrum. He gets all shouty crackers. I'll go, I'll go on shouty crackers on this. <coughs> he turned a few tables over and... <laughs> yeah. 20 months later, Barry Michael went to Lazar's nightclub in King Street, Melbourne, with his then-wife and friend Simon. Alphonse just happened to be there with some of his henchmen. So it's about 18 months later or so. Okay, yeah. Everything was civil for a spell with Alphonse buying Michael some champagne. Ah, champagne for my real friends. Real pain for my sham friends. That's what's going to happen, I think. Well, I guess it wasn't... Well, why did he buy him champagne? Now I'm confused, Barney. You might just have to keep going. Barry Michael wrote in his soon-to-be-published book, At that stage, I thought everything was sweet. My then-wife Sandy and mate Simon were sitting away from where Alphonse and I were discussing business. I stood up to shake hands with him, but I hadn't even got to my feet before I heard Sandy screaming, Those dogs have knocked Simon out! I turned around to see Simon being carried out by bouncers after being king-hit by one of Gadgetano's goons. Suddenly, I'm surrounded, and I still clearly remember thinking, I'm dead here. Everyone knew they carried guns. I turned to Gadgetano and said, You dog, you've set me up. That's when he grabbed me by the lapels of my suit and sunk his teeth into my cheek. He actually had history of biting boxes, having bitten the tip of a nose clean off a man I knew about 10 years earlier. That's a really weird hobby to have. I could actually feel his teeth munching through the flesh Ah. of my face and the small muscles and nerves sounded like they were snapping like gristle. He pinned me on the couch and I never got off there. All I could do was gouge his eyes to get him off me and if I hadn't succeeded, I have no doubt he would have bitten off half my face. He's fucking feral, isn't he? My thumb actually drew a little bit of blood from his eye socket. You'd have to, though. Michael went on to write, I had been in some wars, but the ferocity of the attack was something I never experienced before. Then I heard someone yell out, Where's that thing? Where's that thing? I knew that was code for a gun. My face was bleeding from bite marks, my back had been bitten as well, and my head had knuckle duster marks on it. Then one of his goons grabbed one of those big glass ashtrays and smashed my nose with it, completely breaking it apart. Semi-conscious, Barry Michael was dragged out of the bar and taken to the emergency department of St. Vincent's Hospital. News of the fight got out quickly, Tara, with Alphonse giving his version to newspapers, saying it was a fair fight and that he'd won. <sighs> he probably legit believes that in his own like egotistical, narcissistic mind. Um, Barry Michael, by the way, didn't press charges. He just went, nah, I'll just... Yeah, I'll suck this one up. I'll grow a new nose. In fact, he was prepared to say nothing to the newspapers until he heard what um, Alphonse said to the papers. But as he puts it, I wasn't going to let that biting reptile make himself a hero. Yeah. Oh, my God. I can't believe he went to the press about it. Like, ah, beat him. I bit him a lot and we broke his face with an ashtray and all my friends helped. Like, I'm a champion. I mean, he was a world champion, but in uh, super lightweight. And, you know, Alphonse yeah. is a huge man. He, he, he's, I think he's about six foot four. Ah, oh, the fresh prince of Ligon Street. Yeah, at least Will Smith's height. Barry Michael would only fight one more time in the ring. The injuries he received from the Black Prince and his goons pretty much ended his boxing career. Now, Alphonse really needed money for his expensive lifestyle. So the next thing for him was drugs. I'm he- surprised it took him so long. His BFF, Jason Moran, was making millions selling Eckies and Alphonse wanted a slice. 
Problem was, nobody trusted him for some reason. Yeah. He owed money all over town and most of the drugs he got to sell, he took himself. Where does that go? That goes in me. Yeah. <laughs> I know where to store these drugs. Uh, he knows in what, my mouth. Yeah, He knows what to do. Uh-huh. Alphonse was putting a mountain of cocaine up his nose on an hourly basis. He was paranoid. Everyone was out to get him. He was making threats against his friends and punching random people in the street. In 1995, Alphonse murdered Greg Workman. That night in the Melbourne beachside suburb of St Kilda. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that was beachside. <laughs> Son of a bitch-side suburb. Yeah, your point. Oh, okay, you did it on purpose? Yeah. Really? (laughs) Yeah, bitch-side suburb. (laughs) Okay, go as you were. Alphonse tracked down Workman that night and demanded $50,000 that Workman may or may not have owed him. Now, Greg Workman had form as an armed robber and amphetamine cook. When Workman told him to get fucked and started to walk away, Alphonse shot him six times in the back. Two women witness a murder from a nearby balcony. Ah, uh, they were sisters. Not nuns. They were related. <laughs> they were two women that were related. related. Yeah, they I had the same parents. I remember this from another time that you've mentioned him, I think. Hmm. The Black Prince was arrested, but the case fell apart when the witnesses retracted their statements and fled overseas, apparently paid off and threatened by Alphonse. Yeah, sounds about right. It appeared that Alphonse was more slippery than an electric eel in a bucket of grandma butter. Ah. Uh, slipperiest thing you can get. Ah, uh, pretty hard to hold on to. Oh, you just couldn't, even if you tried real hard. Even if you had gloves on. But, Tara, and it's a big but, in an Italian suit, sipping a cheeky cab sav, Alphonse's days were numbered. Later that year, in December 1995, Alphonse and his mate Jason Moran walked into the sports bar, a nightclub in Melbourne's seedy King Street district. Here they sat upon the patrons in the club with billiard cues and metal bars. It was a, basically a shakedown protection money. Yeah. Yeah. Alphonse in particular went nuts. Cops were called. Jason Moran wisely scarpered. When police arrived, the Black Prince was still punching on and was dragged off by the cops kicking and screaming. Wonder if they'll typewriter his hands again. Alphonse and Jason Moran were both charged with serious assault. There was a shit ton of CCTV footage of the brawl and some of the victims were prepared to testify. Four people had to be hospitalised. Injuries included a fractured nose, cuts, bruises, a fractured jaw and permanent eye damage. Alphonse was granted bail, got a 9pm curfew and got ordered to seek psychiatric treatment. Alphonse was in the shit, Tara. Well, you know, it's kind of about time really, isn't it? Because he's a vicious guy. Well, he was caught red-handed, literally. Well, yeah, they were covered in blood by that point. Yeah. Not just his red right hand, but also his red left hand. Oh, yeah, and probably his shoes as well. Oh, his shirt, his face. He probably bit some people. You know him. Yeah, he likes to bite people. The word on the streets was that Alphonse was going to plead guilty. But Jason Moran's case was not so dire. If Alphonse pleaded guilty, though, it would almost certainly mean a jail sentence for Jason as well. On January 16th, 1998, Alphonse Gagetano was gunned down in his Templestowe home. That night, he'd been drinking with an old-school crim, Graham the Munster Kinneberg. Police speculate that the peacemaker, Munster, had been brought in to talk Alphonse out of pleading guilty. According to the Munster, shortly after 11pm, he left the prince to go down to the shop to get some cigarettes. Upon his return 30 minutes later, he found that the Black Prince of Ligon Street had been shot several times in the head, in his laundry, 
in his underpants. Hey. Alphonse, the dirty dog of Ligon Street, Gadgetano, was survived by his wife and two daughters and another unnamed girlfriend with whom he had another child with. Alphonse's murder is widely believed to have been committed by Jason Moran. Police believe it was Graham the Munster Kinneberg who let him in. So he got there first, the Munster. Yeah, well, he was often, like, he was like, use your words, the Munster. He, he yeah. did try to get people to talk things out. But then I guess he wasn't going to use his words. That's right. he and was still going to go and plead guilty. Yeah. Well, that's right. He was determined. And then there was a knock at the door and the Munster let him in because um, Alphonse wouldn't have let him in. Cause oh, he yeah, because they were fighting by they that They were point. fighting, yeah. yeah. Jason Moran was later killed on the orders of Carl Williams. Jason and his bodyguard, Pascal Barbaro, were gunned down on June 21st, 2003 in front of dozens of witnesses at the Cross Keys Reserve in Essendon where they had been watching Moran's young children play football. Yeah, there were little kids everywhere that oh, day. Yeah, broad daylight. Yeah. It was yeah, in the morning. The yeah. audacity. Graham Kinneberg would also die at the end of an underworld gun. No one really misses Alphonse the Black Prince of Ligon Street, Gadgetano, though. No, no. Uh, no one who walks down Ligon Street and certainly no one who drives down Ligon Street or anyone who has an establishment there. No, they would uh, not have been big fans of his work. I did find out something else interesting. Yeah? I have a, a copy of this 14-page uh, police statement. Oh, by, read it all. Read it all. By a guy, a guy called Russell uh, Warren Smith. Who was a catchy um, name? Yeah, uh, who spent some uh, time in prison with Jason Moran and was also a mate, and they liked to smoke bongs together and punch other people in the street. Woo, four twenty, fun boof, time. Boof. But he apparently drove uh, Jason Moran to Templestowe. Ah, he didn't know there was going to be a murder committed. But what it does say in his what it does say in his statement though is on the way back they got McDonald's drive-through, and he ate the burger then put a gun in the bag and threw it into the Yarra when they were going over this one street bridge. There's probably a lot of Macca's bags with guns in them in the Yarra. Also, this is pretty much the plot of Driving Miss Daisy because Morgan Freeman didn't know when he was driving Jessica Tandy that he was actually driving her to go and kill people. Really? I haven't seen that movie. I don't believe that's it, though. No, I'm pretty sure that's what happens. Yeah, right. Yeah. Driving Miss Daisy to murder sites. Yeah, that pretty much is Turner and Hooch too, isn't it? Yeah, the, the dog drives him to... No, he drives the dog and then the dog... I don't know. I haven't seen it. Yeah, right. Wow, it's research. It's what we do. <laughs> so how about that? That's another piece of the puzzle? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure you have a hell of a lot of the puzzle left, Barney. Yeah. Hey, uh, I've got a question for you. Mm-hmm. Because on our uh, running running sheet here, it says something about a thing called Aussie As. What is Aussie As? <laughs> Funny you should ask me that, Barney. Aussie As are tales of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? Sure. All righty. A Queensland woman has been placed on probation after riding her horse Skippy drunk through a drive through bottle shop. Uh, does she have a kangaroo called Farlap? Uh, yes, she also has a kangaroo called Farlap, but he didn't come with her. 51-year-old Miss Maguire, let's call her Magsy, was more than four times over the legal limit when she was refused service at the Logan City Tavern bottle shop. Magsy had been drinking wine at her place in Kingston when a bit of a catastrophe took place. Oh, what happened? Well, she found out she was almost out of wine. <gasps> After shaking her fist at the sky and proclaiming, There is no God! 
Magsy rode a bike to Marsden, where she swapped out her velocipede for a pony and rode it into Logan. Now, it sounds like she's travelling a really long way on an epic journey, right? Like she's a parched Mad Max traipsing through the desert searching for fuel. But um, I looked this up and it's only 2.2 kilometres or 1.4 miles, which is really not that far. It's not that far. She's still an Australian hero, though. Oh, well, I mean, I don't doubt that. The Logan Tavern staff told authorities that Magsy rocked up to the bottle shop, swigging from a plastic bottle of wine, reeking of alcohol and struggling to stay on her horse. Now, this is giving me Calamity Jane from Deadwood vibes. You cocksucker! <laughs> I loved her. They not only refused to serve our heroine on horseback, but also called the cops on her, possibly out of concern for her safety. Magsy said that she didn't know it was illegal to ride her horse Skippy after drinking, and she'd done it many times before. She said, Oh, not only have I ridden my horse through quite a few bottle-o's and never been refused service, I've never been refused service on my horse at the pub either. Are you starting to get the impression that Magsy does everything on horseback, Barney? Oh, yeah. I reckon she goes to the supermarket shopping on horseback. Oh, yeah. And to the movies. Not the drive-in movies, Tara. No. That would be cheating. Just the ones inside buildings. Yeah, look, she probably goes to work in an office on horseback and to the doctors. She must have a very tall gynecologist. In court recently, Magsy pleaded guilty to being in charge of a horse while under the influence of liquor and was sentenced to 18 months probation. Magsy told the press outside court, I'll suck up the punishment and just try to do the right thing. She also said that she was very grateful to the council and a couple of very nice police officers who spent until four in the morning walking Skippy home for her. Oh, well, that was nice of them. That's lovely. Yeah. I had a good ending. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Happier than most. So the horse was, was the horse drunk? No, Kangaroo? the horse was tripping balls. Um, it was very into LSD. Acid, yeah. Horses yeah. love acid. Oh my God. They just love it. They yeah. love it. They walk around, they see all these like people being ridden by horses and pretty colours and shit. It gets them off. Hey, wouldn't it be funny if it was one of the Black Prince's horses? Oh. That'd be a nice tie-in. Let's <laughs> yeah. just say it was. Yeah, and Gerard Depardieu gave it to her. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. works. Oh, we are the weavers. So this brings us to the end of the episode. But before we go, we'd like to thank some people who took the time to write us some good reviews. So thank you to Melissa Karak from the United States of America. And Steph Page from Australia. And also Sarah CB. Uh, she said these guys are the tits and then put an eggplant emoji. And so I was able to explain to Barney that eggplant means penis because he didn't know that. So he's been looking at his kids' phone messages just thinking that they're really into vegetables. I just, well, it, it looks like an eggplant. What, what do you put down for eggplant? A picture of a penis? Well, you do if you're me. So thanks for all those lovely reviews, guys. And we'd also like to thank our Facebook moderating team. Oh, yeah, they do such good work. They really do. We'd also like to send our love to Mike Campo. He's, um, thank you for the kind words, Mike. Oh, yeah, he's on it. You're on it. Yeah, hey. Mike knows what to do. He does. Now, we are incredibly grateful for the support we receive from our patrons. To try to show them how much we love them, we're holding monthly patron giveaways. Last month, we gave away a bloody murder, keep kicking against a prick's weekender bag. And the lucky winner was Christina Finn. Congratulations, Christina. Enjoy that. Put stuff in it. Yeah, you can put whatever you want in it. Maybe not a head. No, not Gwyneth Paltrow's head. Oh, no, definitely put Gwyneth Paltrow's head in it. But no. put it in plastic first so that the, the bag doesn't get dirty. Yeah. 
This month, we're giving away a bloody murder Hey, baby, T-shirt. Oh, yeah, it's a brand new design that Barney's just done. It's all like 70s font and it's awesome. Yeah, it's sexy. It's bloody sexy. So thanks for listening and thanks to our patrons. If you would like to support us, visit our website. Or if you just want to buy us a drink, that's my thirsty voice, Mm -hmm. there's a PayPal donate button there too. Oh, and who's buying the drinks this week, Barney? Well, we've got Melissa Spears. She writes, hi, guys, have a few drinks on me. Have loved the show from episode one. Love backing an Aussie show, especially a Melbourne show. From a fellow cunt, keep kicking against the pricks, babes. Aw, thanks, Melissa. We also have a donation from Salil Rigney, so thank you for that too. Um, Now, because it's December and for some weird reason, um, Barney and I, both of our jobs, really want us to work a shit ton until Christmas. So this is probably going to be the last wide-release episode of Bloody Murder for the year. Um, However, we're hoping to squeeze out a patron episode before Christmas if we can. Um, We have big plans for next year. Big, exciting plans. Oh, yes. Um, So, yeah, if we don't get to talk to you before then, we'd love to wish all of our listeners a very happy and safe Christmas and New Year. And, yeah, don't let your family drive you crazy, all right? Just take some time out. Happy holidays, everyone. Yeah, and hopefully you get a break and you get to just chill for a bit, you know? Not Mm. have all that stress. And hopefully you you can avoid hearing the little drummer boy because that song sucks. All righty. So thank you so much for uh, for listening and for supporting us this year. Thank you for 2019. Yeah. And 2020, here we come. Oh, we're going to come at you hard. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes. And, of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. Particularly the subscribing. Uh, you can follow us uh, through our Facebook page or join our Facebook group. At Twitter, we're at Bloody Murder Pod. And on Instagram, we're Bloody underscore Murder underscore Podcast. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for news, galleries, more episodes and merchandise, including that lovely new Hair Baby T-shirt. Thanks for sticking around, and we'll be back next year. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. I saw that Google Street View guy, you know, with the backpack, walking along Sydney Road in Brunswick. Oh, I've never seen one of them that wasn't driving yeah, in a silly little car. He was walking along and I was, and I was, he, mm. and I was in the car with my son, he's 14, and, and he said, Daddy, stick your ass out the window. I'm telling you, it's a boy thing. And I did. Well, no, you I were didn't. driving, you walked from out the window, were you? Yeah. Or, or did you just get your son to draw a, a bum on your forehead and you stuck your head out the window? Oh, come on. You can on. do that. Oh, come you on. You can do that's, that. That's hardly fair. Mo's pretty good at art. He could have oh. drawn a realistic bum on your forehead. Shut one eye and use your real eye. Really? The brown eye. I know your eyes are blue. Well, they're green. But you could put in a brown contact. I mean, it takes some planning. Good. So instead, he put on his deerstalker hat and started sleuthing. Ah, like Robert Palmer. Look yeah. at the clues. Yeah, just like Robert Palmer. Oh, whoa, whoa, look at the clues. And his five daughters. Oh, <laughs> Mr. Palmer and his five daughters, huh? <laughs> I don't know what that means. So yes, just... you do. No, no. It's a no. euphemism for wanking. 
know. Yeah. And if anyone knows anything about wanking, it's probably you guys. Oh, come on. <laughs> oh, come on. That's what you say to Mr. Palmer and his five daughters. Oh, no, it's got worse. <laughs> it has. Like, what did you think was going to oh, happen? No. Was it going to get better? Uh, look, just, <laughs> let, just let me have a quiet shank in the corner, all right? Oh, no. Come on. Not while I'm telling you a murder story. That's just wrong. Yeah. Well, you should be ashamed of yourself to even think of it. Ah, they could see the toilet that Elvis died on. Yeah, it was breathtaking. They could sit on it. They could, but what if it was a magic toilet and if you sit on it, you also die? You get to eat fried chicken, though. On the toilet? Yeah. I don't think we're eating on the toilet, Barney. I don't I don't think that's oh, um, well. that's a way forward for us. No. <laughs> no. No, I think uh, that goes in the not a good way to develop okay. kind of so basket. So I should stop that? You should stop that, please. Unsanitary? It's very unsanitary. Unhygienic? And it's also just a bit wrong. Bit wrong? Yeah. I mean, if you've got something coming out of your body, don't be sticking something in it at the same time. I think that's a general general words to live by. Well, I'm just trying to save time. Well, I'm a you busy have been man. very busy. I know. We've both been very busy. Very busy man. I'm a man of all seasons. I've got things to do. It doesn't explain why you have oh. the popcorn maker in the toilet, though. Well, it I does. mean, that implies that you're actually making the popcorn. Okay, I've got to eat lunch and I've got to do a poo. Why don't I just combine those two and save time? You could eat your poo for lunch. No, that's weird. You're being weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all me. I hope Glasgow wins the Eurovision this year. Um, now. Glasgow? I don't know what I'm, I don't fucking I Scotland. Don't, Scotland. I don't. They, well, yeah, I guess goes Glasgow. By country. Well, I don't watch it. Obviously, look, I'm a fag hag, but not a good enough one. Yeah. Not an international one. There was a certain European country that's pulled out of Eurovision this year because they said it was getting too gay. Oh fuck off! I think turn the gay up. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It wasn't quite gay enough for me. That's yeah. why I wasn't watching it. But if, I, if I'm if I'm hearing it's getting gayer, I think I'm going to have to start getting on. That's board. right. And I do love me some sequins and some wind machines. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I saw you drink water before. You're a water-drinking Barney. So? That's amazing. I've I, never seen you drink water I before. I drink water before. But in your life? When I have a bath, I don't let the water out. <laughs> I drink it all and then I get out. Oh, my God. You would have so many hairballs from that, dude. Yeah, I cough them up a lot. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. How do you have a bath? I don't. I don't have a bath. Oh, I have don't, a shower. Baths don't... are boring and the bath's too short. Shitty, you dumb don't fit in baths, do you? Too no, long. I'm too long. I've got to have like, I have to pick which bit's going to be cold and not in the bath. And quite frankly, I don't have time for that shit. You know that film, The Elephant Man? Oh, it's so sad. He just wanted to like drink tea and be left alone. Well, I... I remember my parents got it on video, and I thought, oh, this sounds cool, a half man, half elephant. Oh, this, what, all the gonna adventures a, he's going to have. He's going to have a trunk and stuff, and it's going to be awesome. And then I watched it, and I went, what, what? that wasn't what I was fucking expecting. No, no, it's, it's very sad. Yeah. It's like Naked Lunch. Neither of those things are in the yeah, title. Yeah, it wasn't a lot of lunch. wasn't a lot of nudity. No. No, definitely not. In August 1980, Flannery and two other men were arrested and charged with Wilson's murder. Wilson's body was never found, but police allege that the trio had forced him off the road, abducted him. <laughs> Sorry, trio. <laughs> what? I've never heard trio said like that before. Trio. trio. I like it. Sorry, it was a bit weird, though. Wilson's body was never found, but police allege that the trio <laughs> had forced him off the road. 
Okay. Alrighty. Maybe the third time will indeed be a charm. Tree ho! <laughs> tree ho! You tree ho! Wilson's body was never found, but police allege that the tree dropped down. Oh, sorry. I should have just let you go with your first tree ho. It's like a tree that has lots of friends with benefits. They kept lying that it wasn't on, and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.